Good morning, good day, good evening, good night, whatever time it is you're joining us for another episode of All Things First Aid. I'm your host, Jay. This is our last uh, first aid podcast, so I like ending it with um, some of our courses that we end with poisons. In this episode, we'll be discussing the four different types of poisons and how they enter the body, some of the signs, symptoms in first aid treatment, and a heavy dose of personal safety, use of PPE, and knowing when additional resources are required. So to get things started, there are four major routes that um, a poison can enter the body. Now, um, normally I would start off with any anatomical structure that's referenced to that. So for here, we have three major anatomical structures. The mouth, so for ingested poisons, the skin for absorbed poisons, and the airway for inhaled poisons. Okay, and the fourth one is still the skin for injected poisons. Right. So we'll start off with ingested, just to get that out the way. And I like to start off by saying, if you remember nothing out of this podcast today, remember this: do not give anyone anything to eat or drink unless directed so by poison control or a medical dispatcher all right all i'm going to say with that if you were taught something 20 30 40 years ago and uh you still feel it's relevant come up to speed to 2021 um things do change first aid applications change and this is one of those things that changes unless you have direct medical control either as an emergency medical technician a paramedic of some form in whatever country that you're working in and it is within your uh, scope of practice to do something like that then by all means however then why uh, this this podcast is is really geared for people who either hey a haven't taken a first aid course and they're sort of interested or B, just want to hear some of the refresher stuff. So for ingested poisons, we would look at survey the scene. Is there uh, any pill bottles, any kind of strange liquids around? Uh, Look for, if there is a pill bottle, what's the name on the pill bottle? Does it match the person that's laying on the floor? Uh, Can you make out what the, the pill bottle says, what kind of pills they are? Um, you would have to ask, obviously, the people who know this this individual if this is, you know, their pills or someone else's, or do you know anything about how many was in the bottle? Things like that. Just that kind of information to pass on to the dispatch or poison control. Um, having said that, with poison control, when you do call or. Uh, maybe 911 has a linked integrated system to poison control. They're going to ask you a series of questions, height, weight, uh, approximate uh, amount of ingested uh, pills or liquids or whatever it was, and um, maybe a time um, and the amount that was in the bottle prior to the person uh, taking versus what's left now. You may or may not be able to answer all those questions, and that's fine. 
follow their instructions. Your primary concern now are the ABCs and your own personal safety. So by all means, wearing gloves. If you um, are in a situation where the person is not breathing and doesn't have a pulse, the choice is up to you whether or not you want to use mouth-to-mouth or a barrier device is the best. Uh, choice is still yours. So we're still in a pandemic as of this podcast episode. Uh, so compression-only CPR is a viable option. Any professional rescuers that are listening to this, uh, you have access to your BVMs. Follow your local protocols and guidelines for the use of uh, airway adjuncts in a situation such as this during the pandemic. Also be aware that the person may vomit uh, spontaneously. If this occurs while you're giving care, roll them into the recovery position and um, ensure that all the vomit is, uh, material uh, is safely away from the person's mouth. Um, the paramedics or rescue team may want um, some of that to take with them. That is their choice, so please don't discard of it. Um, so that's the ingested. Inhaled. The big key factor for inhaled poisons is, is it safe for you to be in the area? So is the scene safe for you as a first aider without um, any advanced PPE? Uh, first aid for someone with inhaled could be as simple as opening a garage door. Um, if it's safe to do so, turn off the vehicle's uh, engine. That's always a uh, textbook classic. Carbon monoxide poisoning is someone has succumbed to fumes in an enclosed area. And um, is it safe for you to enter? Is it possible to open the garage door without you being uh, exposed to uh, any chemicals as well? So with the inhaled poisons, there are certain uh, chemicals that you do not mix and you're more than welcome to uh, look those up online. Uh, The big one that uh, I have seen and learned about um, is mixing bleach with uh, other chemicals. Bleach should only be mixed with water to dilute bleach. Um, Bleach mixed with other chemicals can make a deadly uh, or toxic gas. So um, bleach is one of those interesting things that uh, the only thing should be added to bleach as water to cut down the uh, uh, use. So uh, this goes back to here in Canada, we have something called WMIS and um, MSDS. Now, um, I know that some of the listeners in the U.S. are familiar with what a MSDS is. That's the Material Safety Data Sheet. Here in Canada, we use the MSDS as well, and we use the WMIS Um, training tool to know what is uh, different symbols stand for. If your work involves you to be uh, around certain chemicals, you as the worker should be made aware of um, what the um, dangers or potential dangers are of those chemicals. Here in Canada, you are protected under the Occupation Health and Safety Act for whatever province you live in. Um, I can only speak for Uh, Canada, I do not know any other countries so far as their occupation health and safety standards go. Um, 
So if you're working with chemicals that you're not familiar with, you really should refer back to the material safety data sheet that would be located in an open space um, for any employee to have free access to at any time that the building is open. Right. So that's the big thing with uh, inhaled poisons. Is it safe for you to rescue the person? And if so, can you stop the spread of the, the gas? Okay. So in this case, the example I used was carbon monoxide. There are other gases that are odorless and tasteless, or they may have one brief taste in the back of your mouth, and you think it's gone because you can't taste it or smell it anymore, and uh, next thing you know, you're unconscious. So uh, just because it, um, it, some of these gases are very overpowering, very over-airing, and uh, again, if you're working in these kind of environments, you need special training before you're uh, allowed to work around these things. So that's inhaled, ingested, injected. So let's talk about injected poisons here. Uh, we have a couple of different kinds. We have the kind of injected poison, which would be like from, let's say, insect, spiders, snakes. Uh, or we also have injected from like needles. And that could be either deliberately or accidentally stuck with a needle. Now, when I say accidental stick with a needle, uh, my nursing days, I've been stuck with needles. And for us, we have our own policies, procedures for what to do in the event of a needle stick. And um, so for you as the first aider in the field, if you came across a needle and didn't realize you were stuck, then you would need to seek out the medical care at the closest emergency room. And... Um, go from there for what to do. Um, other needle sticks I'm thinking of would be like uh, accidental overdoses of opioids. Now, uh, this has become a real issue in the last several years. And if... God! got to keep in realization for opioid overdoses. If you have training or not, then you know your limitations. 911 ABCs. Uh, if you have training in the use of Narcan, um, then by all means, and you have access to this medication, then you would use it as per your training. Um, Narcan is um, used for immediate reversal of opioid overdoses. So do be, be aware that that is there. Um, if that's something that your job may interest you of, uh, then obviously that would be some more additional training, actual formal training on to the use of um, opioid overdose medications. Okay? The other types of injected poisons that I've referred it to were um, like spiders and snakes and things like that. And are any any bites from whether a human or animal that punctures the skin, any bites from a human that punctures the skin really do need to see seek further medical attention because of the risk of an infection. Spiders and snakes, uh, depending on where you live and what, where you're listening to this podcast, um, there can be quite poisonous uh, spiders and snakes. Most of the spiders and snakes that are poisonous in North America will either be neurotoxins or hemotoxins. And uh, neurotoxin is just 
what it is, it affects the nervous system, which can affect the breathing. Uh, hemotoxin affects the blood, whether uh, making it clot everywhere or acting as a, a blood thinner where the blood just kind of seeps out. So I'm not uh, versed in specific spider snakes and what types of poisons that they are. But do realize that um, even here in northern Canada, uh, you still can get poisonous spiders. Uh, and that's basically through uh, our fruit and vegetables come from warmer climates, such as this U.S., Central America, or, or South America. And um, they like some of these spiders like to hitch rides on the boats, and then they wind up in the grocery stores or the big box stores or whatnot. So do be aware the two types of uh, spiders are the brown recluse and the black widow. The black widow is a black spider with a red hourglass shape on its underside. Uh, and a brown recluse is a very small brown spider, no distinctive marks on it. Uh, you really wouldn't know it from any other brown spider unless you have a specialized training. Uh, snakes, poisonous snakes, most of the snakes in North America are more afraid of you than you are of them. Except for, there are always exceptions. Um, so, two types of snakes. There's the pit viper, okay, and um, the coral snake. The coral snake is not considered a pit viper because it doesn't have the same type of teeth and markings on its uh, mouth and snout area. Uh, the pit viper would be like your water moccasins, your rattlesnakes, and things like that. Um, for the most part, they really don't want anything to do with you unless you happen to be in their territory. Um, and water moccasins are very territorial, so uh, they they can swim just as fast as they on in the water as they can slide on the ground. So they are very territorial. Um, that's one snake that uh, you really don't want to get tangled up in. None of the snakes you really want to get tangled up in, to be honest with you. Uh, treat all snakes as if they're poisonous, meaning somebody gets bit, we'll do first aid for them, and that's basically keeping them as still as possible, identifying the snake if possible, and if safe to do so. If the snake is dead, leave it where it is. Uh, let animal control or local law enforcement deal with that. If the snake has taken off, um, try to identify as much as possible. Did it make a sound? Did it have any colorful marks? Things like that. Um, so the, the person themselves with a snake bite, depending on what part of the body, um, you're basically going to try to keep them as still as possible. Um, you can use um, like a sling or a splint or something to immobilize that limb just to keep them from moving it so as much. Um, for those who've may have seen the old westerns from the 50s, 60s, or 70s. Please don't do any of that stuff. That's very, um, very Hollywood. Yes, at one time it was taught, but it's very, very uh, archaic, and it can be dangerous for both you as a rescuer and as the, uh, the person being bit by, has been bit by a snake. So ABCs, call EMS, and they need to seek medical attention. Um, any bites by a wild animal that may um, require assessment by a physician for uh, possibility of rabies. 
So if there's a wild animal that has bitten someone and the animal was acting strange or very aggressive that normally these animals are not, then uh, obviously seek out medical attention for a possible rabies infection. Another injection um, injury could be like um, somebody stepped on a nail or something outside, poked through the skin. And um, you've, most of you are familiar with a tetanus shot, getting a tetanus booster every five to ten years. Um, well, the dirt in that nail or in that whatever it was that impelled into, let's say, your foot or your hand, well, the, the tetanus bacterium can be found in in the soil. So it's it's always best to seek medical attention, get it cleaned, uh, let the physicians, nurse practitioners assess it. Uh, if uncertain, they can always give you a tetanus booster. Um, it's not something to be trifled with. And that brings us to the last poison, which is absorbed. Sort of covered this in our burns, but I want to kind of revisit this. Um, poison ivy, poison oak, uh, some other um, hogsweed um, plants. These plants can go be as mild as just a mild irritating to can cause blistering burns depending on the plant. The sap itself could be what's poisonous. Just trying to think of the giant hog's meat um, plant that the, the plant itself isn't poisonous, but the, the sap that leaks out is very toxic and very poisonous to both humans and animals. Um, can cause blister-like burns and is very painful. So we would treat anything like that like a burn. So cool to burn, uh, non-stick, sterile dressing, very lightly around the wound maintain ABCs are present and seek uh, immediate medical attention. Poison ivy, poison oak, the minor irritants. There are commercial um, over-the-counter medications you can buy to apply to these areas. will help soothe the, uh, the irritated area. If there is any kind of absorbed poison that is dry, like a dry chemical, then we want to brush that off of them in one area, and brushing it away from you and them as well. So you need to have your proper PPE on, whether that's gloves, mask, eye protection. And then once as much of the dried powder is off as possible, then you would take them to a second area, staging area, where you can rinse with lots and lots of, of cool water rinse that off of them to make sure there's no other residue left. The reason we do that in two stages is if we start pouring water on the area that has the dry chemical, we may not know what the reaction could be. That's why we're using two different physical staging areas. If it's a wet chemical, then we can just start um, dousing them with cool water or tepid water, whatever we have that's on hand to dilute that wet chemical thinking of uh, any poisons in any uh, 
chemicals in or around the eye. If it's one eye is affected, then you would tilt towards the ground of the affected eye. That way it doesn't cross over into the good eye. Um, another thing would be um, make sure that EMS, maybe fire department have been called. If there is a chemical spill or chemical reaction, uh, we want to make sure that there's no other danger um, for anyone else. The other thing we want to think about for poisons is uh, are you safe as a rescuer? That should be your number one priority. Are you safe as a rescuer? And do we need more resources? So obviously the examples I gave with the dry poison or a wet poison, yes, we're going to need more resources. We may need the fire department. We may need a hazmat team. Depending on what the chemical is, where you're located, what your resources are. So, One thing I do want to wrap up for the entire podcast of All Things First Aid is if you are at a position where either A, you have first aid and this is an interesting topic, great. What else can you do at a site? Well, Get involved with your Occupational Health and Safety Team, if you're in Canada. Get involved with your local safety team, whatever country you're listening to this. Get involved if the uh, organization you work for is large enough to have a first aid response team. And um, that does a couple of things. It helps you as a first aider stay sharp on your skills. And two, you get involved with maybe some training practices, uh, looking over the first aid forms. Some are actual first aid form, formal forms that are downloaded from the company or, you know, some businesses or small companies may start making their own. And um, an agency I worked for many years ago, um, I actually made a template for first aid. If um, we had someone who was ill, okay, it was fill in the blanks, name, date, location. And then thinking back to our primary and secondary survey of many, many episodes ago, I would also include that on my first aid form. Um, ABCs, date and time, sample. So I would write the word sample, you know, S-A-M-P-L-E in a downward space so that signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, things like that. Those are just ideas if you're looking to make your own first um, first aid response form for those of you who don't have one. Those are always good things to have on hand. And writing the sample and the OPQRST acronym as well off to the right side of sample you you hit uh, as much of those as possible then you're able to give that information to the res- responding crew whether it be fire or ambulance and that can be very valuable information so having said that this is a wrap up of the entire all things first aid podcast it has been my pleasure and um, I say this from the bottom of my heart this is the first time I've ever made a podcast I went into this 
wholeheartedly as an instructor, as someone who has been in the field for over 30 years and have, have, have a wonderful chance to help many people and teach many people as well. I feel that this is just an extension of my instructor and in my nursing and my paramedic background as well. This is just another extension of, of what, um, what I would like to share with people. So what's going to happen here is this podcast will be published in just a few moments. In the next week or two, I will be starting a new podcast, and we are calling it Beyond the Scrubs. Some of you may have heard the introduction that was published earlier this week. Um, And this will be exploring careers and jobs paths for uh, clinical settings, hospital settings, long-term care beyond the norms of, okay, this is what a doctor does, this is what a registered nurse does, uh, this is what a licensed nurse does. So we're going to go beyond those those nursing and doctor roles. We're going to look at some clerical-like people, accounting, technicians, technologists, you know, what kind of training is involved to do these kind of jobs. Um, and so that's going to be our next endeavor, and I hope you will join us for this. Again, if you have any comments or questions or maybe suggestions, you know how to reach us. The email and the Twitter is always posted on our links. So I say thank you very much for being an attentive audience for the last several months. Uh, Stay safe, stay well, and have a good day.